Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Alan's back. Uh, we took a weekend off to do some fellowshipping and watch some really good tennis matches. And as our guest uh, this weekend, we have Susan Chandler, who I've been familiar with um, since uh, the pandemic kicked off because we were all, many of us in recovery, were moving into an online space to um, to stay connected and to kind of, you know, deepen this work that we'd begun um, before the world changed. And uh, Susan's been so uh, supportive and helpful and um, selfless in uh, her reaching out and kind of making herself of service uh, to, um, to to keep everyone together and uh, uh, to try and, you know, support in other people's recovery. And I just thought it would be wonderful to have her on this week to um, to tell us about her experiences with emotional sobriety and uh, and kind of let us in a bit on her process. So how's it going, Susan? It's going just great. I'm having the best day of my life. And wow. every day gets better than the day before. How long have we known each other now? It's at been least, at least two years. I think a little bit more. Maybe a little um, more. That's what I was thinking, mm-hmm. too. I mean, I think I met you when I was first invited to join, uh, to do a presentation for the Berlin Group on yeah. Monday. And you were one of the first professionals that we invited into the meeting. Yeah, kind of set the tempo, didn't it? Ah, uh, you blew my socks away. I just, yeah. You said things that I never knew. Yeah, no, I, I, I've i been so appreciative of Patrick for creating and you for creating that that space for us to share this stuff. And and it's really turned into an amazing experience for a workshop for so many people in recovery. They're exposed to so many great ideas from so many different professionals. And it's continued to grow and, and to... And and got it. When I was there last time, there was over 200 people on the Zoom. Well, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, in the beginning, Patrick, um, who is the leader of the group and founder and started it and brought you in. uh, In the beginning, he did a lot of research to find speakers. And today, speakers call him and beg to come on our show, which is really pretty cool. So I'm exposed to oh much wider world than I ever had been exposed to. Well, and listen, that's one great thing about recovery, isn't it? It does expand our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Is that things that we're exposed to, the ideas, the concepts, the experiences are are so broad and so prolific, right? And is one way to think it, as well as so deep and meaningful. It's so exciting. And I hear that in you is that, look, I define recovery all the time as a discovery of new possibilities and you struck gold. Well, I think, you know, I have an interesting story and I actually posted it on Facebook this morning Um, about uh, maybe the early 2000s. I had taken a lot of uh, watercolor painting classes and I had a stack of papers, big papers um, that I weren't good enough to frame, you know, Parts were good, parts were horrible, parts were, yeah. And I took them, and this was my life had was starting to change dramatically. And I took all those papers, and it was dozens and dozens, cut them into two-inch squares and sorted them by color. And I produced a bunch of artwork, um, putting things back together again. And I call that period or the collection of my reconstruction and it really 
was maybe foreshadowing what you have taught me. I, I, I knew it wasn't working the way I'd lived before, and I knew I had to change. At that point, I didn't know anything about how to change. I just knew things weren't right. And so I, I created like 150 of these pieces. And um, I only have six left. I, I'd like to say they all sold. They didn't. Many, many, many of them did, but I gave them away because my story kind of resonates with a lot of people. I've had to start from scratch and didn't have a clue how to start. And then Alan showed up. And oh my gosh, I don't know how many times he's told me the same darn thing over and over again, but I will confess, I am 77 years old. I turned 77 a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, I really, when I started on this journey, I was 71. So I'm an old bat. And how do you teach an old dog new tricks? Well, Alan did. And it just really changed my life. Um, and you're going to ask me specific questions and I'll be happy to answer them. But my art has actually reflected who I am um, because I do very different things now than I did before. And I needed that transition, that reconstruction period. Yeah, your art reflects your journey, doesn't it? It mm -hmm. reflects your evolution as a person. Yeah. And I love how you you tore it all apart and put it back together in a different way. Yeah. That's that's a great, I think, metaphor in one way to think Absolutely. About. And I wrote in, in on Facebook about it. I said, I just needed a new perspective. I I absolutely needed, you know, the old the old thing where three plus three plus three is nine. Well, so is five plus four. I only knew three plus three plus three. I had to be shown that there was, you told me in the beginning, Susie, you always had choices. I didn't think I ever had a choice. Well, then that's the, that's, that's the transition is that, is that we transcend this mentality where our life is being determined by forces that we have very little awareness of that are really, Freud said it brilliantly, he says we are being lived by the forces within us. And, and that's true until we focus our self-awareness on what we're doing, how we're doing it, and we become aware of what's going on. And that awareness now creates the paradox by being aware that I have no choice, I have a choice. By being aware I'm powerless, I find power. I mean, it's that paradox is so important and such a big part of recovery, isn't it? Yeah, but I've also found that, um, I mean, I lost my voice completely and I lost it when I was a little girl and I was, um, and my parents did the best they could. I'm not angry about that. They just did what they, just like you told me, you did what you knew and I did what I knew. And I knew that if I didn't agree with my father, I was punished. And so I learned early, early in my life to keep my mouth shut. Mm. And, and unfortunately, I learned to keep secrets. And, um, and that isn't good. And as life unfolded, I had developed these survival skills that I continued with. Yeah. Because they work to create some kind of what I thought was normal in my life until it wasn't right, until it 
got too dramatic for me. Even me, my blinders weren't big enough to hide from the things that were scary. So as you became introduced to this whole concept of emotional sobriety, what was the first thing that stood out to you that really said, oh my God, I hadn't seen this before? You said something to me that I didn't, I didn't like, because I like to think I'm relatively intelligent and uh, know a lot. I don't. I've learned that a lot. Um, but you said to me, Sissy, you did the best you could with what you knew. And it sounds like a silly statement, but it's true. And I, I think I, I had an advantage coming into AA. Uh, yeah, I am an alcoholic. I do everything that I like to excess art. I read too many books. I cook too much. I eat too much. Um, so I am an addict by nature. Um, but I had been married to an alcoholic and I'd gone to AA meetings and I heard the open talks about how you, there's, you can have a new design for living. You can live differently. And at that point, I knew that whatever I had been doing for six decades did not work because I was pretty darn unhappy. And so I came to AA knowing that I could find some answers. I wanted those answers and I was open. I was open. I'm not, I didn't used to be very open-minded, but I was open to changing because I knew I was going to die. I almost did die before I came into the program. And um, so I eagerly wanted to look at myself. I had no idea how much I had to uncover because I'd hidden from it my whole life. And um, it was painful. It was really painful. I didn't do wild and crazy things. I, I really only ever drank out of control by myself. No one ever, I don't think anyone knew that I drank too much, but I know they did. But I didn't do anything overt. You know, I, I was um, pretty, I mean, I'd learned to live small. And as I drank, I lived smaller and smaller and smaller. And the only people I interacted with were the people that sold me alcohol for a number of years. Pretty scary. So um, when I came in, I knew I had to look at myself. And I knew that the fourth step was the vehicle. And I wasn't, I wasn't afraid because I didn't know what I didn't know. I also heard that from you and Herb. I didn't know what I didn't know. And oh my gosh, I uncovered some things that were really quite painful. But they, but I wanted answers. I didn't you, understand. Mind, what was the most painful thing that you uncovered at that point that was so hard to look at? Well, I, don't, I, don't, I have to think about how to say this. I married my college sweetheart and he was brilliant and he was handsome and he was well-liked. And I saw what I wanted to see. I heard what I wanted to hear. And so he met all my needs but there were lots of things that were secret. So no surprise that someone who knows how to keep secrets marries someone who keeps secrets. And as our life unfolded, and we lived a lovely life. We have two children. I now have seven grandchildren. Um, we traveled all over the world. We lived all over the country and all over the world. Pretty good life. But I was really pretty unhappy because we... Um, 
We're secretive people and we didn't share anything, especially if it was painful. If it caused me pain, I certainly didn't want my husband to know about it. And, and he was no different. And so at the end of the century, oh my gosh, how to say that? Our kids were gone in college and one, our daughter was married and we were alone and we'd lived a pretty separate life for decades because my husband traveled a lot for business and I was, I took care of everything at home. I took care of the house, raised the kids. Bob was home on weekends for the most part. And um, it, we would not have stayed married that long had it been different. Had he been around a lot, it would have been much different. So these two secretive people lived in a place where they could be secret and it was constructed that way, um, painfully by things that I had absolutely no control over. And I think, you know, that's one thing. When I came into the program, um, I also, I came in in Al-Anon first and they said, you have to let go. You can't control anything. Well, I really had not controlled my husband. He set the ground rules from day one. Um, um, I can't tell you that story, but he's, he told me that it was none of my business what he felt and where he was and don't you dare ask yeah. and um and he, i told you he traveled all the time i was not allowed to call him so we led really quite separate lives and yeah, i had parallel lives is really what it's called yeah. back to the point you made earlier about that two people that kept secrets got together see this one this one psychologist called it an unconscious marital contract and you know, the funny thing is, so when all this unfolded at the beginning of the century, I went to a sex therapist. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and she said, you know, Susie, I think you and, and your husband were like kismet. You were meant for each other. And as I've done the work in AA, I see it. I At the, at the time, I thought, what the heck is she talking about? Yeah. But I see it exactly. Yeah, no, that's see that contract is that look, I'm not going to push you to divulge your secrets and you're not going to push me to divulge my secrets. We'll just live with them and we'll and we'll just pretend that that's going to be OK. See, it's well, it's a, and but, but the other thing is, when I was a little girl, if I didn't agree with my father, yeah. if I didn't um, if I ever said anything that disagreed with what he believed or what he was doing, I got punished. Yeah, you so got, you got, I already got that training. Right. So he was he was just building on that when he would yeah. say, don't you dare call me or ask me, this is how it's going to be. But it was keeping with that, with that contract that says we're going to keep secrets from each other. Yeah. See, that was the deal. And, and a lot of us enter into relationships with this unconscious contract. And it's like cancer. Because the unconscious contract is never a healthy thing, right? It's not a healthy no, it's not. agreement. It's an agreement that, that you know, eats away at any possibility of, of developing a strong connection or a strong we in the relationship. But the interesting thing is, in my childhood, I learned early on that it wasn't safe to play with my friends at my house. I played with my friends someplace else. 
So as an adult woman, as a mother, a young mother, uh, an older mother, I learned that it was safer to be around friends than it was to be around my husband. Why? saw evidence of it. And so I, um, you know, I volunteered all over the place. I, I did lots and lots of things and, and was quite satisfied with a lot of that. Your refuge was found outside the family, outside the family, is what you're saying, is that early on, you learn that that was part of uh, how you had to survive, right? Because we all need safe in some capacity. Um, but it's so powerful, yeah. isn't it? These forces <laughs> that are living us are totally influencing our choices, mm-hmm. the way we're living our life, our lifestyle, what we do, what we don't do. And we walk around so unaware. That's why, you know, we're on Thursday nights now, we're going through the 12 essential insights. And we start with, you know, realizing that I'm I'm sleepwalking, right? Waking up from our sleepwalking. Well, this waking up is really becoming aware of. That's another way to say it. Instead of thinking of it as waking up, it's you're really increasing your self-awareness of how you're functioning and how you've created the existence that you're living. I live in the suburbs of Chicago. I don't live in Chicago. And I I moved to the suburb I live in uh, right before the pandemic. Because I live in Crystal Lake. Crystal Lake. Northwest. We moved out to Morton Grove a little bit. So, and I grew up in Park Ridge. So um, I moved out here because of the meeting that was here. I liked it. It was a bunch of men my age and women, but the women were younger. The men were my age and I were the same age. So we had the same growing up experiences. And one of the fellows in the meeting, um, when I came to the meeting, I was extremely tentative, scared, scared of my own shadow much less everybody else's shadow I was pretty afraid of. Um, And so he said, I want you to read uh, chapter five, how it works, that the first couple pages or so. And um, the first day I read it, I read the first paragraph and it talked about honesty. And I sobbed Mm -hmm. because I, I knew we'd never been honest a day in our lives. Not me, not my husband, nobody. And I knew I had to start being honest. Didn't know how, yeah. but I knew I had to. So he made me read it. I went to the meeting every single day at 7.30. And he made me read it week after, day after. For me, my memory th- makes it sound like I probably read it for six months. I probably read it for two weeks, maybe, maximum. But it, I read it until I didn't cry when I read it. Well. Until it finally sank in. This is the work I've got to do. I've got to live in reality. I can't create what I want. I have to learn how to live in reality. So huge lessons to learn so late in life. And another interesting thing, my granddaughter, who's in her early 20s and lives in another state pretty far away, um, she called me a year ago on my birthday, which was August 25th. And um, we had such a good conversation. She asked if she could call me again. And we have talked every single week since then. So we've gone through another birthday. And I just talked to Lily yesterday morning. And and uh, I'm pretty careful about what I say. Um, but we talked more deeply about our family situation. And we talked about 
how do you know the right person to be with? And she has made a couple mistakes along the way, just like I did. And um, she said, well, Noni, that's what they call me. What would you say would be the most important thing to know about finding a good partner? And Alan, you'll laugh at this. I mean, I, I know what's right. I didn't do it. I said, Lily, you have to be honest. Even if it hurts to say the truth about yourself, you have to share that with your husband. And he has to share that too. And if you can't be honest with each other, then it's going to be a challenge. But if you start that in the beginning, it becomes second nature. And I said, we didn't ever do that. And, and I'm really sorry about that. I wish I'd I wish I had known. I wish I don't believe my parents were ever like that either. So I think that's what I observed and thought was the way to go. I know I can remember thinking, I'm really happily married because we never fight. And it's because my husband came from a family where he who fights the best wins. So I was doomed from day one because I learned to fold quickly. So we did not have a good marriage. I wish we had. I think we tried in our own way, and it it uh, wasn't the right way. When Alan told you that you were doing the best you could at the time with all the information you had at the time, what was the what was the sting you felt with that? Like, um, can you well, explain that a bit? At the time, and um, actually, I, it, at that point, I was still living in the past, frankly. Um, in 1999, my husband went into treatment for alcoholism and everything, the reality of our lives came forward. I couldn't accept it, but I saw that what I thought was my life was not my life. And when Alan said that to me, I just remembered thinking, I have failed in everything in my life. I have how did I pick this man that I married uh, when he's really quite was quite different from me in other ways? Um, my marriage had failed. Uh, my children were quite angry with me for divorcing their father after we were married 40 years. How could you do that to us? My husband was ill. He had Parkinson's and uh, my daughter had to step in and take care of him. And um, she's pretty angry. And so I felt like I had failed everything. And the part of my story that I prefer not to talk about uh, was something so um, distasteful that my friends didn't want to talk to me. So I'd lost everything. Wow. I'd lost everything. Um, I worked in the automotive industry. I had a wonderful job. I did a very good job. Um, but I also lost that job because they downsized. And I can remember my boss calling me in and, and I had already been told they were going to cut me a couple months before. And my job in those couple months time was to clean everything up so that whoever took over my job didn't have any problems. And I did a good job of that. Um, but I can remember my boss coming in and saying, I need to talk to you. And I knew what it was about. And he told me, and I said, uh, he gave me a choice of dates within weeks and, and my divorce process was starting. And I said, well, 
I need to know by such and such a date. And he said, well, then today's your last day. I failed at my work too. So I failed at my raising children, being married, um, my friends, my work. What else did I have left? It was grim. And so when Alan said those things to me, I just remembered how, how much of a failure I felt. And what he said gave me hope. Gave me hope. And it's worked. Well, it sounds like it's the first time that you were able to look at yourself with some compassion rather than yeah. this harsh judgment. Well, you know, when I when I um, was a young mother, I had a baby boy. My son was is the youngest. My daughter was three or four. We went home to Chicago. I stayed with my parents while my husband went to a conference in town. And I said to my mother, without saying anything specific and really not knowing anything specific, I said, Mommy, something's wrong. And this is what she told me. And this will tell you how I was raised. She said, Susie, if something's wrong with your marriage, it's your fault. Fix it and make it look okay. And don't you dare get a divorce. So I didn't feel loved very much as a child or as an adult. And so I did what my mother said. So which quickly shows everyone else in the whole world that I was a little girl still. I might have been 32, but I was a little girl. I had not instead, I did not drink when I was 10 years old. Um, but instead, my emotions had been so shut off that I didn't mature very appropriately. Didn't know how to deal with feelings. And by the time I came into AA, I had frozen all my feelings. I just was, um, you know, stiff upper lip, buck up. If I just, this is the other thing. I didn't know that I'd lived with anxiety for decades. When I came into AA, all of a sudden, I actually have shoulders that can be low. And I'm not, I haven't got my hands gripped like this and every muscle tensed in my body because that's the way I lived for decades. I just didn't know. I thought that's the way it was supposed to be. I thought that I didn't, if something was wrong, I didn't do it right. Try again and try harder. So when you said I didn't know what I didn't know, I, okay, okay, this is good. Well, all of those, at least those two ideas, started to open up the possibility that, first of all, you weren't as hopeless as you thought, that there could be some other possibility, especially in terms of a relationship with yourself, that you could look at some of what you had experienced in your life without judging yourself for it and having some compassion. And look, I, I can't emphasize enough what an important part of establishing or developing emotional sobriety in our life, that compassion, the role that compassion plays. It's well, essential. I think the big deal for me is that I depended on what everyone else thought of me to, to determine my own value. And Alan taught me that that's just not the way it works. It just doesn't work like that. Got to be balanced, right? It's okay to, to, to enjoy that feedback, but to depend on it and to, have that as the only thing is where we get in trouble. 
um, you know, it's really great when someone sees us and sees who we really are, like when I saw you and saw that you were not your symptoms, you were not the problems you had, you were more than that. And that meant a lot to you. So that's, that, yeah. you know, sometimes that's too, too interpreted too much as self-reliance. And we, we don't, I don't mean that. I just mean that at the final analysis, your opinion of yourself is more important than anybody else's. Yeah. And see, that's what we've got to get is not to let somebody else define us. And I talk about that a lot in the first book I wrote about emotional sobriety, the 12 smart things to do when the booze and drugs are gone. Is this is this emotional dependency allows or permits other people to ha have too much a say about who we are and how we think about ourselves. And that becomes very problematic, especially when, because we're dealing with people that are struggling with their own issues, that are projecting their own stuff onto us, you know, and their own demons and their own ghosts and their own trauma and their own unfinished business, you know? And if they're, if they're not living a conscious life, they think that that's the reality, they're, that they're seeing us as we are when they're just seeing a projection of who we are. But, you know, that brings up another point, though, about relationships is every relationship starts off the way you and your husband started off. I mean, everybody goes into a fantasy of what this is going to be like and how it's going to be a solution. And then reality hits. Right. Then we start to see that, you know what, this person isn't all that I thought they were. This relationship isn't everything that I hoped it would be. And that disillusionment is not, it, it, it's a normal part of any intimate rom romantic relationship is that we're going to be disillusioned. Now, the problem is, is when people hit this, they think this is the wrong relationship for me. So they have an affair, they turn to somebody else, they run away. I mean, and look, and sometimes it's, you have to end a relationship if it's toxic and the other person's not available to really try to develop something better. But if you've got two people who really love each other, then what you can do at that point is to have sorrow over what you've lost, what you thought it was going to be. And then, like you said, once you deconstruct that, now you can reconstruct something better. What we say is a lot of marriages, their first marriage doesn't work and they got to get married a second time. But a lot of people don't have the wisdom to understand and to walk through that difficulty because we want it what? Easy, right? That's big part of the curse that we all suffer from, big part of the big lie. If it's but right, you, it'll be. But you see, I was raised slightly differently. I grew up in a family where, and I wrote this down this morning, I thought of this. Remember the show, Father Knows Best? Well, that's the way I was raised. Father, My father knew best, and I'd better be careful. And so I was raised that the father of the family is, it's not appropriate, but is like a god. And so when I married my husband, he was handsome. He was brilliant, smarter than I am. Um, and he was, he had really quite a successful career. And so he was, my parents thought he was God's gift to the world. And so I never looked at him as failing. I looked at myself. 
well, as the failure from day one. It wasn't just when my mother well, told when me. When I say that we get disappointed, I'm not saying that we just get disappointed in our partner. We get disappointed in ourselves and in the relationship as well, right? And that's what yeah. you're saying is that you got disappointed in yourself. And that's one style. Other people blame the other person and they're disappointed in them and what they didn't do. But they're both focused on blame rather than focused on understanding that that is hitting that spot in a relationship doesn't mean something's wrong. It's a very important thing to embrace with compassion and see what that means. But look, you're right. I mean, for you, when you internalized all that stuff, you put yourself through hell because you just blamed yourself all the time. And, and so it, I ended up thinking I had accomplished absolutely nothing in my life when, in fact, I've really done some pretty cool things. Right. You know, I really have. And um, so I. The blinders serve to keep right. out the bad, but it also insulated me oh, and but, kept but, me but, from. See, when you say I did some pretty awesome things, I want people to hear that as humility, because humility is having an and an accurate, not an over or underestimation of your success and accomplishments. And it's part, it is humble to say, God, I did achieve some things that were worthwhile. Yeah, so you I've, did. You I've realize done some cool that. things. It is a cool thing. Yeah. And it's part of humility. It is part. People wouldn't see that as part of humility typically, but that is part of it is to be able to say, you know, I did pretty well here. Frequently, um, I hear people say, and I have myself have said, you know, um, I wasn't supposed to fail. That relationship wasn't supposed to go sideways. I wasn't supposed to lose the job. Um, but like, that's just so much a part of the fabric of the lives we live and um, not an ultimate assessment of the quality of our character. Um, and I think the work we do with emotional sobriety after you put the plug in the jug, right? It It's a more uh, accurate way of parsing that, that information and seeing uh, seeing ourselves as we are rather than a distortion based on what all those things we do comparing ourselves you know to others or the shoulds right um and old dogs can learn learn new tricks uh that's one of the little nuggets that I most uh treasure from my experience with these groups and kind of like the last couple of years of my recovery is, seeing people start this thing like fairly late in life. Like I, there's a lot of uh, individuals, I think in my familial orbit that like have been running the same program for quite some time. <laughs> and I, and I got to thinking that that's just what happens. You get to, a, you know, you get older and you just kind of resign yourself to, um, to a single mode of doing things. You make the same mistakes ad nauseum. And uh, anyway, it's really, it's a frightening thing, you know, or it is for me, but um, it doesn't need necessarily to be like that. And uh, so it's like, there's, there's a large supply of hope. I feel like um, in these circles. Well, that that's part of this emotional sobriety, isn't it? Patrick is, is the installation of hope is we start to, you know, find hope where there was none. And the other thing that you're that really you're highlighting a lot in what you're sharing in terms of what this means to you, Susie, is how empowered you feel in your life now. 
Well, you know, I think I think this is going to sound crazy to a lot of people who are in recovery. It's the first safe place I've been in in my life. It's a place where I could speak my truth, where I could say things that people would say, yeah, I know just how you feel. I've never had that. I never had that. So it it was a huge shift for me and and pretty awesome actually to be safe to be safe for the first time in my life. It's heartwarming it's it's very meaningful. Do you have a thing that you're looking ahead to uh, in your recovery and all the work that you've been doing? I feel like I'll speak for myself like there's that um, carrot. <laughs> the carrot and the stick, you know, and I'm just like, I've definitely got my project, you know, in terms of like getting better at, at running my program than I used to. And um, yeah, is there anything that kind of like you could maybe speak to about like, you know, just what, what is, what is a layer that you're trying to peel back currently? Well, probably the biggest layer and um, you know, what I've learned, some of the very things that I thought protected me are the very things that I learned the best from. So uh, Zoom was brilliant for me because I have always kept people at arm's length because I'm afraid, because I'm afraid to be judged um, like I had been by my family. And so I went to, I've been to thousands and thousands of AA meetings on Zoom since the beginning of the pandemic. At the beginning, I went to 12 a day, maybe, maybe more. Every waking hour, I was in because I was afraid I'd drink because I was alone and I was, I had to stay separated from people or I'd get COVID. And, um, and so it worked quite nicely. I don't operate like that now, but what my hardest thing is to reintegrate myself with real life people that I can actually put my hand on, you know? Um, so I, I do go to face-to-face meetings, but I'm still pretty cautious um, that I would say with hindsight, I've always been cautious. I didn't think I was, but I always have been cautious. And I, I know it's ruled by fear. And uh, so it, the principles that I've learned from AA and Alan uh, work really well. And they work especially well when I'm alone. You know, I don't bother other people when I'm alone. And yet in face-to-face meetings, I can bother people. I don't know that I do so much, but I am learning how to reintegrate myself into life after really two decades of isolating, thinking that was the answer. And and the cool thing is I can listen to Alan and Roger and Herb, and, and I know that um, maybe they didn't struggle quite like I did. Some aspects are the same, um, but I learned that there are always different ways of looking at a problem. A problem. I don't look at things as problems anymore. They're just lessons that I forgot to learn before, and I'm given another chance to figure out how to do it a better way. Who knew I could say that even? To be open to change, I, I think that's pretty cool. And if I can help my daughter and my granddaughter move forward in a better way than I did. Um, 
that'd be pretty cool. So I actually went to my doctor a couple of weeks ago and um, I, I had old age questions. I don't want to wear one of those darn necklaces that's in case you get in trouble, you can poke it and, you know, so we found another solution that is not quite as obtrusive and um, talked about it. He wants me to walk. And I said, I'm really afraid of falling. And I'm not in any, and I'm not hampered in any way. I'm just afraid of falling. And so I've bought those jetty sticks that I'm going to walk with. I'm, I'm trying to move smoothly through older age. And, and it frightens me. You know, I'm in pretty good health. Who knew that could be possible? Because frankly, before I came to AA, I almost died. You know, for whatever reason, I got the uh, I got the flash of um, Apollo 13, you know, where they're stranded <laughs> up there and they're trying to invent like the engineering solutions to uh, getting back to Earth. And like I just uh, one of the recovery superpowers that you're kind of uh, demonstrating for us is like we go towards the thing that we're afraid of. It's something that we would never do um, were we not in uh, this new mindset. And, um, you know, you're going towards the thing you're afraid of, but you're also you're all hands on deck in terms of like, how do I do this in a way that's going to, you know, keep me safe, you know, accommodate me, you know, as, as healthily as possible. Um, yeah, it's very inspirational. Thank you. And, you know, I live in a community where I, I moved here six months before the pandemic started. So I really didn't have a solid footing in the community. And then I was isolated for three years. So I'm probably just now trying to get involved in the community. I did get involved in some ways, but in normal ways. I live in a town where many of our, my neighbors have never left the town. And so they have friends that they've had for their whole lives. And, um, you know, it's just, it's okay. I've moved so many times and made new sets of friends so many times that I'm, I'm good with that, but it takes time. And with what's happened to me, you know, I'm, I know I'm nervous. And so far it's all turned out incredibly well. Oh boy. In 2017, I would never have imagined that I could have a good life. It's not what I thought I'd have, but it's a wonderful life. And I do the things that I like to do. You know, I paint all the time. I, I'm a pretty good baker. And so I bake a lot. And the good news is I'm learning how not to eat it all myself. But mm. um, I do what I'm, I'm happy doing. And it makes me feel good. And I actually, you know, the other thing Alan taught me, and I don't know that it was Alan, but he reinforced it in different words. I've learned, there's a sentence, it's the best sentence in the whole world, and it's one word, and it's no. Mm -hmm. I never knew that. I never knew that. I never, I always thought if I said no, I had to justify why. You know, the old expectations and the um, unreal the unenforced rules that I have I had a lot of rules, yeah. but I grew up with a lot of rules and I've learned the other thing I've learned. So I have a story. You don't know the whole story. It's a pretty grim story. Um, and what I understand is if I have a story, so do you. And if I want compassion from you, 
for who I am and how I'm trying to do it right and, and fumbling along the way, I have to have compassion for you too. And that really has changed my whole thought process, my whole thought process. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and being so willing to share yourself and your experiences, Susie. It's, you have developed that honesty in your life, that's for certain. You've really made a commitment to it, and it shows today in our discussion. So thank you, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to be inspired by what you said. Thanks, Alan. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories. Bring your stories back to me. It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me.